Hello, I'm Ruth Blakely. And I'm Caroline Schwabi. Welcome to Experience Wine, the wines of Germany, and a little something extra special today. We're going to talk a little bit about the science behind wine. I talk about the art, the history, the culture, and because I'm not a scientist, I kind of leave that whole side of it off to the side. This is so <laughs> very handy to have friends who are scientists. So welcome to the studio to Dr. Dietmar Kennepel, who is a professor of chemistry at Athabasca University. Welcome, Dietmar. So nice to be here. Willkommen. Yeah. Oh, danke. <laughs> the nice thing about having a friend who is um, a chemist who knows the chemistry of all things delicious, by the way. He also does a wonderful talk on the chemistry of chocolate, the chemistry of beer. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think that there's a there's a whole series of wonderful things that we could talk about there, but but today we're we're talking about German wine, and as his name might um, give an indication, Dietmar is of German extraction. So. <laughs> you can't have a name like Dietmar and not be German. It just it just can't happen. Well, you you could, but it would be unusual, right? <laughs> Uh, so today we're going to talk again. We're going to take a little trip to Germany in our glass, which is really, I think, for, for most of us, really, the, the whole fun of drinking wine is to, um, to, to experience those emotions that come along with, with, with drinking a fine glass of wine. So go grab yourself a glass. If you're listening to the podcast and it's an appropriate place for you to have a glass of wine, put it on pause, get a glass and taste along with us. We'll talk a little bit about how to taste wine, how to evaluate wine. And, you know, if you if you have a, a Riesling or a German wine that you want to try with us, then then that's great. And if you don't, just whatever you have kicking around works, too. Right. Right. It's okay. a great idea. So Caroline, let's you, all drink wine together. Let's all drink wine together. Caroline, you uh, you have a little bit of history with German wine. Can you talk a little bit about what German wine to you was? Oh, and true confessions here too. People may not know that Caroline's family is originally also from Germany. Right, and I married a German boy too. So. Um, Sadly, our families always uh, came up with the sort of hochteller of, of wines. And <laughs> we, we drank, you know, when I was like 12, we would, or, or even younger than that, we would always get a, a glass of wine. And uh, so that's that was my experience sort of growing up. And it, but in high school, actually in German class, I did a presentation about Rieslings because I was interested and, and thought those were it just seemed like a uh, a really neat thing to talk about and teach a few people how to say the word Riesling, right? And um, and then uh, the tr- the truth is I haven't tried many higher end uh, German wines. We did we did pass through uh, the town of Peaceport and we um, visited one one winery there, Manfred Breit. And we tried several wines and had a lovely afternoon with him. But to be truthful, um, I don't remember much about those wines. So it's been a while, and I'm looking forward to what's in our glass today. And Dietmar, your story is somewhat similar. 
Well, parts of it. I mean, my German wine experience happened in stages. So the first part was like Caroline. I mean, I never did any presentations at school about <laughs> wine, but our family, you know, would buy like Winzertanz uh, and and Liebfraumich, and because that's what you could get at the time in in Canada. And you know, when I was ten years old or twelve years old, yeah, you get a little glass of wine at family celebrations. So you thought of it more as 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 food than forbidden fruit and uh, so that was that was nice but it wasn't until after I had finished my um, graduate studies that I, I I lived in Germany for a year and a year and a half and that kind of opened my eyes to all sorts of wines that are there the wonderful Rieslings and uh, uh, vine qualitates vine with mit predicat so you get all the what the Australians would call stickies like the the sweeter wines and so it, it was really interesting and even a couple of years ago my wife and I actually biked along the Mosul River oh beautiful And so we went from Trier to Koblenz, and Koblenz is where um, the Mosul and the Rhine come together. And this is all wine country, and we were visiting vineyards and and all sorts of, you know, trying different wines out. And, of course, the Mosul is the first place in Germany that the Romans actually planted uh, vineyards. So it has a history with it, too. There's been Rieslings in the Mosul since... 1435. It's, it just blows your mind, doesn't it? I've seen Dietmar's photographs, too. It's really a beautiful place, isn't it? It's lovely. I mean, if you if you imagine that the Mosul kind of, you know, meanders and, and snakes around and some, you know, some of it are hairpin turns and you have these walls of vineyards coming up and these picturesque towns every once in a while. And some of the remnants of the uh, the Romans are still there. Like there, we saw some Roman villas. We saw some Roman wine presses. And it's just it's just wonderful, and of course the Germans are very organized about it. There's bike trails all <laughs> of the way they are. all the way through there <laughs> along the river, and sometimes through the vineyards. So you know you you travel, and when you get thirsty, you stop for a wine. Oh, that's great. that sounds like a dream. Doesn't that's it sound just wonderful? Sounds beautiful. Okay, so we're we not actually there, but we're going to take a little trip into our glass with our first wine, which is not surprisingly from the Mosul. So true confessions, when I was taking my Wine and Spirits Education Trust WSET credentials, the level three exam scared the bejeebies out of me because I was not as familiar as I should have been going in with some of the wines from Germany. So I studied like crazy. And I passed the exam with flying colors and it was all fine, but I've since forgotten how to pronounce almost everything. So you'll notice throughout the podcast today that I continually hand off the pronunciations to Caroline and Dietmar (laughs) so that I don't embarrass myself too Desperately, We can help you. There you go. <laughs> so our first wine today is, is a Riesling, and it is from the, uh, grown along the Mosul. And this is from winemaker Sibylla Kuntz. Well done. Very good. Good job. Close enough, anyway. Uh, and she is the CEO and winemaker of her own company. She has almost total control of this estate. Um, She's won a lot of awards, gets a lot of press. There's not a lot of women, there's not even that many women winemakers, but there are very, there are fewer still who are also chairman of their own company. So good for her. Uh, Her husband, Marcus, also makes delicious wine. 
but um, I think that that Sibylla is really blazing a trail here for for women winemakers, particularly in Germany. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the label. So I have had people tell me that they are terrified of German wine. Because, because of the label. Because of the labels. There's so much information on there. And, and they're very long words. <laughs> they're extremely long <laughs> words. I, and most of the ones I cannot pronounce. So what's nice about uh, what Sibylla and Marcus have done with both of their labels is that the labels are very clean and very easy to read, even if my pronunciation is awful. So this very simple label says Mosel. Riesling, and it's Qualitzwein, close enough? Qualitätswein. Qualitätswein from 2016, and it says Trocken, which means dry. And I think for a lot of people, that is what scares them. If they're looking for a dry wine, they they don't know. They see Cabinet, or they see uh, Bierenausschlesse. I know I'm not saying that right either. It's okay, um, that that's not too bad. It's in the neighborhood. <laughs> um, they, they, you know, they don't they don't know what they're looking for. So we can talk a little bit about that. But I want to try this wine. So let's try the wine. So we've talked a lot about how to evaluate wine. So the first thing you do, you pick it up and you look at it. And it's a lot easier if you're looking at the color if you can hold it up to something that's white because that will give you a better indication of the actual color of this particular wine, which it's is... It's very clean looking. It is. Sibylla makes it's very clean wine. Pristine. It and, is pristine. Uh, and like really light, almost, it just has a, a lemon hue. I would call it pale lemon yellow. Oh, I got it. <laughs> First try. <laughs> Sometimes Rieslings can be darker. They quite often will drift into gold. This is from 2016. Now... 2016, not a particularly stellar vintage for Germany. So that was not a stellar vintage for uh, for the Mosul. It sure smells good, though. But it smells absolutely delicious. So you've taken a look. There's no sediment. It's pale lemon. You stick your nose in the glass. You can get a little bit of lemon smell, too. And you do get some yeah. lemon smell. There's some lovely citrus aromas. Mm. What else do you detect you know, there's a funny thing about Rieslings that you you always get in, the, at least I've always gotten in the nose, and it's sort of like a petro smell, like a, and it it is present, but it's not overwhelming, which is nice. It's kind of a little bit milder in this. A little this muted, but but it's definitely there. I th- I think this is a wine that you could, if you ever wanted to try and you know have your own little tastings, and you want to try tasting something blind, which is people don't know what's in the glass. This would be a good example of what a Riesling is because it does have a little bit of that petrol kind of mild dieselly smell, but it's not off-putting. No, it's not, and uh, sometimes it can be. I, I've had some some. Rieslings that is just a smack in the face and it's almost unappealing. But this one is this one is quite lovely and a little bit subtle. So let's it's beautiful. Have a little slurp. So now that you've got the right. got the wine in the glass, remember when we we're trying to taste the wine, we often pull air over our tongues at the same time, and that way the wine gets all over your mouth and it makes a terrible sound. But let's, it is let's do that. Let's okay, make let's that slurp. Sound. So, Dietmar, what's the first thing that you noticed? 
it's dry. It, it's um, crisp and clean. I would describe it like that. Yeah. It's, it's very crisp, very clean. What about you, Caroline? I like the citrus that you're getting. So I, I always enjoy a little bit of a, a lot of acidity, actually. This is just, I would call it medium acidity. I, I would call it probably medium plus, maybe even high. And if you're trying really? to figure out how, it, you know, what's the level of acid, and sometimes, especially if the wine does have a little bit of what we call residual sugar, this one does not. If it has a little bit of residual sugar, sometimes the acidity gets hidden. Am I dripping? Is the inside of my mouth wet? So I've finished the wine and I'm a, I'm salivating. Yeah. Then that's the acid talking to you and telling you that it's a high acid wine, which isn't surprising at all for a Riesling. What other kind of flavors and aromas did you detect? So we have citrus. We have a little bit of petrol. We got some citrus. With, without being cliche, I do taste a little lychee. Sure. Absolutely. Like a little sort of mild fruit that I can't quite identify did you get that? Mm, Not really? No, no. Um, but I was smelling some honey, but after I tasted it, I couldn't smell the honey anymore. So mm-hmm. Because your brain says it's not sweet, so <laughs> you, can't, you must not be able to smell yeah. honey. So maybe honeysuckle. I don't, get, I don't get a lot of floral. <laughs> I don't get a lot of floral, but I do get a little bit of stone fruit. And we talk also, when we're talking about how to evaluate a wine, we also talk about complexity of the wine. So we have quite a number of flavors and aromas. So we have, you know, relative complexity. We talk about sometimes the intensity of the wine. Um, this wine does present quite boldly. It's not, it's not, um, it's not a light have a sip and it's gone. You don't need to think about it wine. I think it's, it's a, I would call it a serious wine. I, I agree with that. And I think that if this had been my first Riesling ever, uh, I would have fallen in love at first sight. <laughs> it, it, I, I, um, I've tasted too many that are far too sweet that have too much residual sugar. So this is just so pleasant. And I, apart from that initial nose, I'm not sure if I would have identified it right away as a riesling. It's, it's, I love it. It, it's, uh, it's got a lovely finish. I think the finish goes on for quite a while. Germany is a northern country, and ripeness of the grapes has historically been difficult to achieve. Now, that's changing. It's, you know, the temperature is, has warmed some there. Um, so, it, it the, you know, getting the, the grapes to ripen is not as challenging probably as it used to be. But I am going to get Dietmar to read, because Cabinet I can cope with, but every time I say Spätleser. Spätleser no, is nice. Actually, that's yeah. really good. Auschleser? Auslaser. Auslaser? So, so close. Bieren Auslaser? Bieren Auslaser, yeah. Trockenbieren Auslaser? <laughs> See, Germans have the... Sorry, carry on. And no, 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 I'm going to get Dietmar to say that. Trockenbären aus Laser. Yeah. He's been laughing at how I say that forever. <laughs> and for those of you who are similarly impaired with pronunciations and you're looking for something like this in a store, you can go in and ask for a fine TBA. And if it's a good store, they will know. There you go. And that's Dry Berry Select Harvest, um, affected by noble rot. None of our wines are affected by noble rot today. We've talked a little bit about botrytis, and I think we'll do another podcast about botrytis-affected wines, also as the Australians call them, stickies. And we'll do a, we'll do a separate show on that. And something that should be familiar to Canadians, uh, the, the last level is ice vine. 
So if I was looking for something that was just a little off dry, I can go into, say, a cabinet or, um, and, and again, there's the cheat. Have we ever talked about the cheat t- to figure out what the um, sugar level is in a wine? I don't know if we have. I ever don't did. think we have. Tell me. The, the key point is the alcohol level. Okay. Because what is wine except for fermented grape juice? And the level of fermentation, if you're stopping the fermentation, you're leaving sugar in there, your alcohol level is a little bit lower. So I'm going to get Dietmar to talk about fermentation in a minute. We, when, the, when the winemakers and the vineyard managers are traipsing through the vineyards, trying to determine when to harvest the grapes, which is a huge issue for them because you really want to pick them at their peak ripeness. So when they're juicy and fully ripe, not overripe, not underripe, they um, they do it by measuring the sugar. And they measure the sugar... Of the grape? Of the grape. They cool. S- they, they put a little bit of... They squeeze a, a, a grape and they put the juice on the refractometer... And that's about as much as I know, because after that, it becomes sciencey, and that's why Dietmar is here. Okay, so, so I've got 22 bricks or whatever. It wouldn't probably be that high there. It's probably 20. So they, they, they figure out that they have the right level of um, sugar, and then through some sorcery and magic, it becomes wine. So um, do they have a target number that they're, they're after? It probably depends on the year, the the type of grape, the product, the you know what they're trying to make the end product. The amount of rain. The <laughs> amount of rain, right? Because it's a you're not going to get as much ripening either, and you're certainly not going to get the intensity. Um, if you think about a, a grape that's full of water, it's not going to be as sweet as a grape that is you know just on the edge of starting to dry. Right. So, this particular uh, producer, Sibylla Kuntz, is also a biodynamic producer, which takes organic to the next level. They take a very holistic approach to their vineyards and their production of their wine. So we have grape juice. And sometimes we have introduced yeast. And sometimes we have natural yeast because there's yeast in the air. And Dietmar, what happens between the grape juice and the yeast that at the end, we have this wonderful wine? Well, this is um, less to do with chemistry and more microbiology. So I put that out there in case people... But there's a lot of chemistry in there. He's too, my but. science guy. I just kind of... If it's a sciencey question, I ask you, Dietmar. So the, yeah, so the, the yeast basically feeds on the sugars, and which is mostly like um, fructose and, and glucose. So the, you know, the monosaccharides. And... Uh, produces carbon dioxide. It produces a lot of carbon dioxide, something like, you know, 50 or 60 times the volume of the liquid itself. And it produces ethanol, which, you know, we know is is uh, grain alcohol. And so we want to optimize that. And there, there are different things that kind of um, affect that. So the temperature, what type of strain of yeast you use, um, you know, the, 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 the container, how much agitation and so on. And so you can try to optimize the alcohol. But, you, but here's the thing, you don't want to completely optimize it because if you do, you basically get alcoholic grape juice. What you want is an inefficient 
um, yeast that not only makes the alcohol, but also makes all these other compounds that add to the color and the flavor of the, the, the wine at the end. And so that's what makes it really interesting. So all these things that we've been picking out, like the, the lemon flavors and the, the aromas and the lychee and, and so on, these are little molecules. And a chemist would look at you know wine as a mixture of things. Yes, it's mostly water and alcohol, but then you have all these other things in there that make it really, really interesting. And so, so am I understanding this correctly? It's essentially those flavors are the almost like the byproduct of the yeast, and is that correct? That's that's one of the sources. I mean, there are a number of other sources, like from the grape itself. There are molecules that go through untouched. Um, sometimes, uh, like the the next wine that we're gonna probably try is, is, has seen some wood, right? So sometimes you get flavor that comes from the wood, like mm-hmm. vanilla is a very you know, common one that you would get from wood. And so um, a winemaker knows the science, but they also have to have the art there to kind of Mm. uh, guess what sorts of combinations would work well. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the basic part of, of the yeast. And people are trying to work on different yeast strains to get different flavor profiles. Well, that was one of the things I was thinking about earlier when we talked about um, making organic wines and that often it's just the yeast that's in the air, which you also use when you're making like a sourdough bread, right? You're not going to, you don't really add the the yeast right and then you're getting into something that's called natural wine and that has been a very active movement over probably the last five or ten years really really came to the fore in the last five years certainly at the consumer level and those wines have um minimal interference by man they um they use natural wild yeasts because there's yeast in the air everywhere um and years and years and years ago when i was in the south of france um we were visiting a wonderful, the Perrin family chateau at Beaucastel, and we were there visiting with some Americans who were growing Rhone-style varieties in California, and they said that they wanted to walk through the vineyard with a fur coat so that they could collect all of these wonderful wild yeasts <laughs> because they were so magical because they'd been growing such amazing uh, grapes and making such amazing wine at this chateau for so long. I thought that was really quite funny. Um, but, you know, it, natural wine is a style um, and not 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 all natural wine is wonderful because you never it's risky business because wild yeasts you can get some really off flavors too and that's why you know I mean mainstream production they really try to control that and so once you get into wild yeasts you have to be careful um, some one of the nice things about some of the old world wines is that they are natural wines without really they don't didn't really think about it as a thing Our next wine, though, is kind of exciting because when you think of German wines, I think most people think about whites. They think about wines very much like our first wine for the day, Um, our Sibylla Kuntz Mosel Riesling, which is bright and fresh. But our second wine is red. What? Crazy. (laughs) I know. It's a lovely color red. It is a beautiful color red, and I'm going to hand the bottle off to Dietmar so he can read. It has a longer title. It's not completely um, unreadable by those of us who don't speak German. It's it's kind of in between the Sibylla Kuntz and some of the older style. And this wine is... 
So it's a, it's a fairly clean label, and it says Weingut Knab, 2015, Erdinger, Engelsberg, Spätburgunder Rotwein, and then Trocken, which is dry. So we know this is from near Baden, relatively speaking, um, and that the Spätburgunder, which I'm probably still saying wrong, is by any other name Pinot Noir. Oh, yeah. So we have done a Pinot Noir episode. So this is this is a good practice for Caroline to think back in her in her mind. Exactly. About we tried beautiful Pinot Noirs. Pinot Noir. we, we were a little bit spoiled that day. Yes, we most certainly were. Uh, but this definitely looks like a Pinot Noir. So when you think about Pinot Noir, it is um, light to medium body. This is, I would call, medium ruby. And 2015 was a wonderful year for growing pretty much everywhere in Europe. Um, It was a Goldilocks year in Germany. It was a Goldilocks year in France. It was a Goldilocks year in Spain and Italy. So, so this smells like Goldilocks. I stuck my nose in here. Right, right. Wow, Uh, my I instantly was was salivating just uh, just at the fragrance of it. Um, it's wonderful. I, I smell black cherry. Cherries, yes, definitely. For certain cherries. And cherries is a really classic Pinot Noir um, aroma. So my parents uh, were born and grew up in Witzenhausen. Uh, and Witzenhausen is the place where they grow all the cherries. It's called Kirschstadt Witzenhausen. Well, I know what Kirsch is because I've drank lots of that. Exactly. <laughs> and that's where they grow the cherries to make Kirsch that goes into your Black Forest cake, for example. Oh, and uh, that just... ca- So um, when Andreas and I visited Germany one year, we had an opportunity to go into the, the cherry groves. It was just, just a, a lovely, lovely place. And the second I smelled this wine... Uh, it kind of took me right back into that cherry grove. It, it's a beautiful, beautiful smelling wine. It's it's traveling in your glass. What else do you smell, Dimar? Uh, I'm trying to figure it out. There is a little bit of a leathery component. Uh, it's not. Mm. It's it's not huge. Mm-hmm. I was going to say wood, but um, okay. So this... not really vanilla. More like a cigar box. Oh yeah. Oh yes, it is. I, yeah, I needed the suggestion, but now I now I can smell that too. The fruit is so mm. forward, like that cherry. Is so, it is very fruit forward. Yeah. It is very fruit forward, and I think when people think of red wine from Germany, they just wince. But but there there are many fine quality red wines from Germany, um, and unlike their neighbors, not that much further south in Burgundy, the prices tend to be pretty consumer friendly. So. You know, when we go back and we think about the Pinot Noirs that we tried that were um, $60 and $120, and this one is around 30 Oh, that's great. So it's a little bit more budget-friendly, um, and it might be a little bit harder to find, but again, go to your local wine shop. If they're a good shop, they'll be able to help you, and if they, if they don't have, like the store that I work at, at the wine cellar, does not carry this particular wine but there is another independent store in Edmonton that actually has an excellent selection of German wine so that's where I send people if they're looking for something like this so a good wine store should send you so if they if they don't have what you're looking for they should be able to send you somewhere that that you should be able to find it we didn't talk about the cost of the Sibylle Kunst it's also right around thirty dollars 
Okay. It's all, it's all that's, a, that's a very nice value. And I'm finally going to okay, take a sip. Let's Are we taste, ready? Let's taste this this Pinot Noir. Because I can't say Spätburgunder. Spätburgunder? <laughs> <laughs> it almost sounds like you're swearing in German, doesn't it? <laughs> so, interestingly, I think that there is slightly less body in this than there was in the Riesling. Yeah, I, I would agree with it. There's uh, the finish is a little bit. I, I want to say lacking or it's a little short. It's a little yeah. It's a little short, but it's not too short. I mean, it's, 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 it's no, there's it still lots in there a bit. So it, yeah. yeah, I mean, and and there is a little bit of tannin, and we you know Pinot Noir not particularly tannic. Um, if you're looking for a nice light, lovely, flavorful, lovely, but but. A little bit lighter wine, uh, Pinot. This is this is a great is, option. Yeah. It's a happy wine. I it's think. a happy, yeah. happy. It's wine. a happy wine. And and again, you know, if you if you have people coming over and you're not sure if they drink red wine or white wine, uh, Pinot Noir is often a good choice because it kind of splits the difference. I'm, I'm very happy that it's a little cooler, and that it's not room temperature. Right. So we talk about serving red wine at room temperature, and when those rules were being written in Western Europe, uh, room temperature was, you know, 17 degrees, <laughs> uh, not the 22 or 24 that we have in, in North America. And for our American friends, um, you know, the room temperature that they're thinking of is in the, in the high 60s. Um, so this is actually being served at just slightly warmer than cellar temperature. So my cellar temperature is 14, and this is probably at about 17, 18. It's probably about 18 degrees by now. It's warmed up a bit. But it is a little bit cooler, and it flatters the wine, because red wine, if it's really warm, tastes kind of flabby. Mm -hmm. And that's not pleasant. So if you're at a restaurant and your wine comes to the table, you can actually feel the bottle. And if the bottle feels really warm... You can ask them to chill it down. They, if it's a good restaurant, they won't look at you like you're from Mars. Um, and you can just tell them that I think that this wine is just a little bit too warm. So, you know, you can put it in a nice bucket. And uh, a friend of mine who is a very serious on a file did that um, at a very high-end restaurant and kind of got the kind of got the look from the server. And he was like, I am not going to drink a $400 wine too warm. Thank you very much. Wow. So. Yeah. At a high-end restaurant, the server shouldn't <laughs> maybe thought about that. Or try to try it yourself. Like, uh, really? Uh, compare. Yes. Experiment. Yeah. It's a wonderful hobby to try and learn because you just have to keep trying. Right? <laughs> oh, the hardship. <laughs> the toil. So I, I find this wine interesting because it, it comes from uh, an area in Baden called the Kaiserstuhl. And I, I lived in Freiburg, which is like just very close to there. And I would always go to this, what they call a Strauss Wirtschaft. And, and this, is, this is kind of interesting. So Strauss is like a straw. And sometimes they call them Besenwirtschaft, like a, a broom um, place. So wineries are given permission by the government to serve food at certain times during the year. And so they'll do that. And to show that they're open, they'll sometimes put a broom out front. 
So if you're wandering around or biking or anything like that, and you see like a winery with a broom out front, you can go in and you can order like little food and um, and then try out all their all their different wines. And that's it's just a, a really relaxed tip way. That I of, did not know anything about that. That's that's a really neat thing to to learn from you today, Dietmar. That's. And, and the place, one of our favorite places was on the south side of the Kaiserstuhl. And the, the vineyards where this wine came from is on the north side. So it was like a stone's throw. So I, I kind of feel like I'm at home now. So thank right. you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and we've talked a lot about traveling in the glass. And, and I have been to Germany, but now I want to go back and drink a bunch of wine. Which is oh, yes. <laughs> not really a hardship anyway to slice it. So we had two wines moderately priced, very different, uh, a red Pinot Noir. Um, you know, we should talk just briefly, and I'm getting distracted here, because uh, there are other Burgunders also in Germany, because there's a Weiss Burgunder, which is Pinot Blanc, and I'm not going to be able to say the gray one. Dietmar, you're going to laugh at me if I try to say it. Grauburgunder. See, that one, uh, which is Pinot Gris. So those are those are all um, wines that you can get and very similar area, growing area to, to the wine that we're having today. And, and some of them are really wonderful. So yes, I think that Riesling is the rock star from Germany, but there are some tremendous supporting players as well. They've come a long way. And the whites, some of them are just magic. And Dietmar, thank you so much for taking us on your cycling trip, even if it was, <laughs> even even if it was only in in memories and in photos in days past. But um, did a beautiful picture though. And I and I'm so glad you can get all these nice German wines here now. And it's it's more than just the Liebfraumilch because I think, um, you know, a lot of people. That's what they think German wines are. They're too sweet and they're kind of bland, and, but there's a lot out there. And uh, I've fallen into this trap more than once. I did the same with Italian wines. You know, in the 70s, you kind of grow up and the only thing you could get in Canada was like a, you know, remember the, the straw bottle of Chianti? Chianti, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you go to Italy and it's just wonderful. It's like being in France. They have all sorts of, you know, different uh, growing regions and it's, it's very rich. So I've fallen into that trap several times. So, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if you haven't looked at German wines for a while, look at them again. They're interesting. Give them a try. Some of them are really magic um, or chemistry or biology or all of those things. Dietmar, thank, thank you so much for coming in. That's our guest, Dr. Dietmar Kennepole. I'm Ruth Blakely. I'm Caroline Schwabi. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.